the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You're lucky, Dean. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. It is Friday, and we always like to look at uh, entertainment things in the uh, third half of our three-hour tour on Fridays as a way of sort of starting the weekend early. And uh, we're going all the way back to 1931 in the horror classic Frankenstein with uh, my guest this hour, who's been on the show before, talking about actually his career as an outlaw rock and roll photographer. This is going to be a little different tale from Julian David Stone, who joins me by phone. Hi, Julian. Uh, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Great to be on here. Um, Julian, the the name of the book, which I failed to mention in the introduction, is It's Alive, which is like the quintessential quote from that version of the uh, Frankenstein story um, filmed in 1931. What made you want to go behind the scenes of that particular version of Frankenstein? There are so many. Sure, that's true. It's been done many times, but that's the... As you were saying, that's the quintessential version, the most famous. Um, I, I grew up in the in the seventies, in the sixties and seventies, as a lot of kids who sort of discovered those films when they were very young and built model kits and everything. And I absolutely loved them. And then I kind of drifted away as I got older, and then I saw them again as an adult, and I really felt for them because I saw them as much more that I uh, that there was a lot more to them than what I had seen when I was quite younger, and I got quite taken by them and started researching them as films because I had myself moved into the film business, and that's when I discovered the different characters, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and a character named Junior Lemley, who had been the head of Universal Studios at the time that these films were made, the classic Universal monster films, and that and that's what sort of drew me in, looking at them as an adult and discovering some of the very fascinating characters who had been behind the scenes on producing these films that are still popular, you know, almost a hundred years later. Well, you know, it's it's really funny. There's almost like a, um, um, I, I don't even know what you would call it, some kind of a high-ranking council of uh, classic horror film monsters 
Um, horror films have have evolved over the decades, and lots of new characters have come to light. But there's this group of elder statesmen, if you will, Frankenstein, the um, Dracula, the Mummy, uh, the the ones that were doing those uh, Ravel. Um, plastic models uh, that you were talking about, <laughs> Julian. Right. Because I had yeah, friends the, that put those together, too. Yeah, and, that they were uh, they were made by a company called Aurora, actually. Yeah, that's right. And they had, that's right. Yeah, and they had, they had um, part of the selling point was that some of the parts glowed in the dark. So you could make <laughs> these versions glow in the dark. So there's a term that's sort of used to encompass this, that, that I absolutely love, this group of fans of these films it's called children of the glow you know people who grew up (laughs) yeah it's a great term that sort of describes specifically the people that sort of saw them as kids in the 60s and 70s and are now huge fans but what was so interesting is that people were so taken with those films um whether it was you know the the uh, Frankenstein uh, monster or Dracula or the Wolfman that they started trying to figure out any kind of way to revisit those characters um, you know son of Frankenstein and and right. bride of Frankenstein and, um, and 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 some of my favorites were were the uh, Abbott and Costello meet the monsters right Right, and those were well, so much fun. Th- they were great. It's it's a fascinating cycle of films that runs pretty much from 1931 to about 56, 57. And just as you were saying, it starts with the originals, where w- we meet the sort of the Mount Rushmore of monsters. Yeah, where yeah. You have, you have Frankenstein, Dracula, the Invisible Man, the Mummy, and Bride of Frankenstein. Then Universal starts to make sequels with them son of frankenstein son of dracula and then when that sort of plays out then they start mashing them all together where the monsters you know frankenstein meets the wolfman that they they put them together house of um house of dracula all these things where there's lots of monsters and then they make the comedies which is the last sort of incarnation of the cycle with the exception of then the creature from the black lagoon comes in the 50s and kind of has its own little mini cycle where they make the original film a sequel and then the final film maybe not intentionally but is a little funny as it gets a little silly and <laughs> it's uh uh in the way it's made so it's it's an amazing grouping of uh, cycle of films that goes on for about 25 years and and they're um such a such an integral part of um hollywood films you know even though they may have been considered b movies when they first came out right well that was one of the things that intrigued me that the original ones the the you know what i did is i decided i wanted to write a novel about the the days leading up to the making of frankenstein because this was the way i could talk about the different characters who were responsible ultimately for these films that are still loved till today and um, originally, these were not uh, cheap movies at all. They were right up there. They weren't even B-movies. That was one of the things. My main character of my novel is this fascinating person named Junior Lemley, who was only 23 years old when he was running Universal and wanted to make Frankenstein. And he was the only one who wanted to do it. His father had put him in charge of the studio when he was 21. 
and he wanted to make different films than his father, so he didn't think of it as a B-movie. He thought of it as an A-list movie, and he really put everything into it, and that's what really pulled me into the story, was the, the story of this this kid, basically, who was really taken with making these these horror films. You know, I saw a, uh, a documentary, um, I think it was a public television thing, but it could have been one of the other cable channels, uh, um, and, and it was essentially Frankenstein in the movies. And mm-hmm. what it did was it played the whole Frankenstein story in order, scene by scene, showing how each scene was depicted differently in different versions of the movie. And they included young Frankenstein. <laughs> and that's great and it followed the storyline just as well as all of the other incarnations of frankenstein i was really surprised by that yeah uh young frankenstein is almost is mostly a parody of the third frankenstein film it's mostly a parody of son of frankenstein uh, if you watch it, if you, if you remember in Young Frankenstein, the the uh, police inspector who has the yeah. the fake arm that that's almost verbatim out of the movie. Like it's so funny in Young Frankenstein, but if you look in Son of Frankenstein, he's kind of doing some of the exact same shtick. And and it you know today it sort of gets a, a laugh in the theaters, but at the time I don't think it was meant to be funny. But he's doing all that stuff where he's locking his arm into you know into position and lighting a cigarette and all of that. And and Gene Hackman playing the blind uh, man in the in the right. young Frankenstein thing. Yeah. And when you watch that, all of those things that that happen the lighting of a cigar, the pouring of soup, the drinking uh-huh. of wine, all of those things happen. Of course, the glasses don't break when they clink them and he doesn't <laughs> spill the soup right. in his lap. But but it still follows that same line yeah. in the story and, and it, it that so surprised me and i had read things about young frankenstein mel brooks getting uh, props from uh was it universal um that had all the stuff in storage in uh, yeah that, that's sort of a famous story that he reached out trying to find somebody uh, or he reached out to the i think it's strict fadden was ken strict fadden was the person who created all that great lab equipment and he reached out to him to see if he still had any of the plans or anything on how to reproduce the stuff and the guy said well not only do i have the plans i actually still have the stuff in my garage so a good That's portion right. of the stuff That's in right. young the good stuff the good portion of the stuff in young frankenstein was used in the frankenstein movies itself now, one of the things that shows up in, in your book that took me completely by surprise was um, how unknown Boris Karloff was. And he played the monster. In fact, he was so... Uh, did, I, did I read somewhere that he was so unknown he wasn't even invited to the premiere of the movie he was basically the star of? Yeah, well, th- that's basically part of the, the, the legend of the making of, of Frankenstein. He was a complete unknown. He, he was in his early 40s, and, you know, he was, he was a struggling actor of his time. I mean, he, he, the last couple of years he had started to get 
little work here and there, but he was, you know, by no means was he a known person. And, you know, the life of an actor is very much paycheck to paycheck. And sort of to give you an example, this is what I like to sort of say to people to give you an idea of where he was in his career. The very next film that comes out after he shoots Frankenstein, he had this, this film that comes out after he had been, filmed it, he had made right before Frankenstein. His character doesn't, is, is called Waiter doesn't even have a name. That's how small the part was. And that's the film that comes out immediately after he finishes filming Frankenstein. Now, once Frankenstein comes out, he instantly becomes a huge star. And the next film that he, or one of the next films he makes for Universal is a wonderful film also directed by um, James Whale called The Old Dark House. And in that, everything has changed. You can see all the promotion for the film. The very first word is Karloff. I mean, he very quickly, once Frankenstein came out and was such a huge hit, he became a household name, and he stayed one for the rest of his life. When did, um, when did Arsenic and Old Lace come out? That happened many years later. That was actually during, in the, in the early 40s, and he did the stage production, and it was a huge hit. A number of years. In fact, he's not in the movie version of Arsenic and Old Lace because the because the play was still a hit on Broadway, and he couldn't get out of the contract to do the movie. Yeah, he he played a guy who looked like Boris Karloff. Right, right. And and I just I I thought that was um, just interesting and and spoke to sort of was he just that good humored. He seems to have been. That's one of the charms about him, is that if you, you see interviews with him, he seems like a very happy person, a very nice person, and very comfortable in his skin. He just seems to, you know, even during this period sort of leading up until the discovery in Frankenstein, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to have been a particularly upset person. I'm sure he would have liked to have worked more like any actor, and he certainly had a a complicated wife or life, excuse me. His his. It's a little bit of a slip there. I was going to say that went, might have been a little it, bit Freudian there. Yeah, because at the time of Frankenstein, he was on a uh, filming Frankenstein. He was on his fourth or fifth wife, so he'd had a he'd had a complicated life. It's not even exactly known, to be honest with you, people that research his life exactly how many wives. He had because there's some, you know, he had a his his upbringing from coming, you know, leaving England to many years sort of traveling around Canada and the United States in these really small theatrical troops where they'd come into a town and do, you know, six plays in a week. It, it, it's a little sketchy some of the details of, of what went on there. There there may have been another wife or two in there. Uh, <laughs> there is some evidence of that. So Freudian slips aside, uh, it, it was it was definitely complicated for him during that period. My guest is uh, Julian David Stone, and the book is "It's Alive," and and we're going to talk some more. I hope, Julian, you can stick around for a few minutes. I have to take a break here. Absolutely, I would love to. Okay, uh, Julian David Stone. He was on the show, uh, I think, about a year ago. It may have been longer. Um, I lost a couple, a couple years. Yeah, yeah, I, I lost a couple of years because of the COVID, but... Uh, <laughs> right. It was a couple of years ago. It was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, we had a great time talking about uh, No Cameras Allowed, my career as an outlaw rock and roll photographer. Now he's uh, got a novel that leads up to and includes, I think, um, the the making of Frankenstein in 1931. Anyway, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break, and we'll be back with more. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, 
Dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about the 1931 uh, horror movie Frankenstein, as uh, talked about in the book It's Alive by Julian David Stone, who joins me by phone. Julian, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. <laughs> My pleasure. That that last ad was kind of funny. The one with the uh, trying to the consumer protection board for uh, uh, robocalls. I thought that was actually kind of a funny ad. Um, actually, we have several of those. That is actually Michigan's attorney general. Oh, really? Yeah, and she makes those as public service announcements, and uh, huh. so so we carry them. There's there are several. There's there's uh, well. I, I don't want to get hung up on that. We've got monsters to talk about, <laughs> right? Um, right. But let, let's um, let's let's get back to this. Um, what gave you the idea to um, make this into a novel that that basically trips through the making of "It's a Life" or "It's a the uh, Frankenstein." Well, uh, you know, as I was saying, I, I watched the films as a kid, kind of drifted off to other things and then rediscovered them when I was older. And at that point, I was working myself in the entertainment business, so I got interested in reading the behind-the-scenes of the, the making of these films. And when I finally landed on this this character, this person, real person named uh, Carl Lemley Jr. or Junior Lemley, that that really took me that uh, that there was this very young person in charge of a studio. That's a story unto its own. Uh, Carl Lemley Jr. was the son of Carl Lemley Sr., <laughs> who was the founder of Universal Studios. For, for, for uh, his son, Junior, became just known as Junior. When Junior turned 21, his father as a birthday present, put him in charge of all of Universal Studios. And this was a huge movie studio even back in the late 20s, early 30s. And that already took me. I was like, this is an amazing story. And then it turned out he was the one who wanted to make all the horror films that are still so famous to today. <laughs> they put the and, kid and was, in charge of the studio, and what does he do? And, he and makes he, monster yeah. movies. That's and brilliant. That, that, are, that turn out to be huge hits. Nobody wanted to do it. And, you know, they, the Universal ended up making them like we were talking before for the next 25 years. And then as a writer, when you start making connections, because, you know, what is Frankenstein ultimately but a father and son story? It's a creator disappointed with its creation. And the relationship between Carl Lemley Sr. and Carl Lemley Jr. had some wonderful parallels where the father puts him in charge of the studio and right away he wants to make completely different films than the father wanted him to. And so you had that same sort of disappointment in what he was doing and that's the kind of thing as a writer that you sort of live for the kind of parallels and that's kind of where everything took off from and then when i dwell further into and this is something we hadn't really gotten into yet in our conversation that 
Boris Karloff was not originally cast to play the role of the monster. Originally, it was Bela Lugosi, who had become really famous from Dracula, that, that Junior and Universal had already made, and they wanted to sort of cultivate him as the next Lon Chaney, another big major horror star. So he was going to be Frankenstein's monster. And then through various machinations, which is a lot of what my book is about, it doesn't end up being him. It ends up being Boris Karloff. You know, I saw the silent version of um, Hunchback in Notre Dame, speaking mm -hmm. of uh, Lon Chaney. And I, I was just, I, I was so surprised that the, the movie went back, that that story was being told in silent films. And, and that these, these types of horror stories went back that far. And I was really surprised that, um, that, Lon, that, um, Lon Chaney, um, Boris Karloff wasn't already well known when he was cast as Frankenstein. With that voice, I would have thought he would have already been a staple in radio. You know, my understanding is he didn't do a lot of radio. There was a lot of theatrical stuff in the 20s, and he had done a lot of work in movies just a couple of days here, a couple of days there. I believe Frankenstein may have even have been his 80th movie. But again, if, if you know, people who, who don't live out here in, in Hollywood or don't know the entertainment business, because I have a lot of friends like this, they'll do one day on a movie this week, and then the next week they might do a day on a TV series. You, you can get by sort of, it's, it's, it's a paycheck-to-paycheck paycheck existence, and you can accumulate a tremendous number of credits, but it's not a comfortable life. It's a struggle, and that's kind of where Karloff was. He does appear in all kinds of different little silent films with a, a day here, a day there, but in terms of when his career really came together, obviously, was Frankenstein. I was surprised to learn when I lived out there uh, for a very short time, um, I made friends with somebody who had done some screenwriting and uh, she told me that um, some of the best screenplays were never made oh the, <laughs> that's that's a huge part of it i mean i i had a, a career in the 90s i did a lot of screenwriting and almost everything i wrote and it was a good period for me personally but none of it got made you can you, you can make a living without having well that was that was my next point julian as i was yeah. going to say there are writers out there who are yeah. making a living writing screenplays that are never made into movies yeah which is and, and, and fascinating the, uh, it, it is and that's one of the reasons that we're busy here ta you're talking to me and i'm talking about writing a book because for any number of factors, I, I decided to stop writing screenplays, and one of them was definitely the dissatisfaction with that, that what was considered a success was you would sell a script, which is a wonderful thing, but then most of the time it wouldn't get made or it would get rewritten, and I'm, you know, I'm personally much more satisfied right now talking to you about you know, my words, my, my book my creation, you know, with, with its alive. <laughs> Your own Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. <laughs> um, it, it, was there ever any different title, a working title or anything? How did, how did that, that, and, and it's an iconic quote. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, you're talking about for me. I thought you were talking about for the original. No, no. <laughs> how did that become no, the title of the book? And it, and it, if it, there's it, a backstory it, on how it the line made it into the movie, I'd be glad to hear. Well, that there too. there is an interesting story. I'll I'll tell the movie for uh, or in a moment. But no, it, it just always seemed to fit. You know, it's so associated with Frankenstein. This is in terms of the title for my book. It just it's so associated with Frankenstein, and since my book is about you know, it's a novel about the making of it and bringing it to life. It just seemed perfect that it was, it's alive. Um, what I was going to say about with the actual Frankenstein, because it's one of the most remarkable and famous moments in the film, you know, where it's, it's alive. Oh, it's alive. yeah, when they do trailers, even even for yeah. late, late shows, they'll, they'll yeah. have all of the voiceover stuff and they show one scene and that's it. Right. Well, what's really interesting is in the original script, uh, Colin Clive is the name of the actor who plays Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a whole other thing that the monster was never called Frankenstein. It's the monster and it's Dr. Frankenstein. But uh, they, they become synonymous to the point that in, the, in Son of Frankenstein, they sort of deal with the issue and sort of explain that he's now called Frankenstein because he's so famous. Um, but anyway, going back to what we were talking about, in the original script of Frankenstein, it, it's only twice written that he says it's alive. In the final film, Colin Clive is so remarkable and is so in the moment as an actor, he says it seven times. That's, the last five are all completely improvised. So that's why that, that <laughs> moment is so powerful. I mean, you're just watching a character, you know, completely caught up in manic and, and in his moment. And as an actor, it's, it's another just wonderful performance. This... Um the the story leading up to this um you know it 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 includes you know family drama and you talked about uh junior and and his dad and and uh being given the uh leadership of uh universal studios but hollywood politics and and professional rivalries was there a rivalry between um bella lugosi and uh Boris Karloff after he got the gig? Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things that's a lot's been written about, and there's a lot of different opinions. After Karloff became a star, uh, and Lugosi was still a star from Dracula, obviously Universal saw an opportunity, and he, they put them together sort of as a team in eight different movies. Um, so, you know, they, they clearly, it, was, it wasn't to the point that they couldn't work together. They apparently had a very cordial working relationship. But, you know, th th there's no question that uh, it seems mostly in, in the accounts going forward, mostly that the, I don't even want to say, I don't know what the right term is because I don't want to make it more than it was, but it, it seemed mostly to be from Lugosi's side because what's also fascinating about this moment in time is that Everybody, the, the three main characters in my novel, Boris, Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Junior Lemley, their lives are forever changed by the making of Frankenstein. From this moment on, Karloff goes on to just continue to be a star for the rest of his life. Lugosi doesn't do Frankenstein, continues to work, but his, the, the type of films he's in get kind of spotty, and over the years they kind of become lower and lower budget. And, and so he, it, in some respects, his, some could argue his career never fully recovered from not taking the role in, in Frankenstein. And obviously, Junior Lemley, uh, after, after this, you know, he was proven right and the Universal Cycle was launched. So th there's definitely 
they, they all, this is a big moment in all of their lives. And in terms of Bella and Boris, again, it was understood that they, they got along just fine, but there was talk of some professional jealousy, you know, particularly when you look at where their careers went after, after Frankenstein. You know, there's, um, getting sidetracked again, there's a scene in Young Frankenstein that, that everybody always enjoys, and, and it's the, um, the, the uh, presentation that Dr. Frankenstein puts on with the, with the monster and, and right. the, the song and dance putting on the Ritz. <laughs> right. Was there a scene that that was based on? And, and what I'm leading up to is the movie was made in 1931, but when was the movie set? Well, that's always been one of the fascinating things about the, particularly the, well, most of the universal cycle. It's never quite clear where you are or when you are. You know? Well, the reason that I ask is because, you know, getting a theater and bringing and doing a demonstration like that, not necessarily doing putting on the Ritz, but, you know, okay. showing off the, you know, this creation and talking and, and doing a, sort of scientific talk and presentation about the work that's been done there there weren't any real journals before a certain period of time there was no right. you know no television no uh zoom no youtube and and so in order to get the word out scientists would do these like town hall meeting demonstration things and I'm just wondering if that doesn't maybe date when the story is unfolding. Uh, it, you know, it very well could be. Like I said, most of Young Frankenstein is a parody of Son of Frankenstein, and I don't recall anything in that where he's even presenting that the monster is harmless. It may be something in one of the later films. The Car Karloff does three appearances as the as the monster in frankenstein bride of frankenstein and son of frankenstein so i'm not as familiar with the later uh you know frankenstein meets the wolf band the ghost of frankenstein there may have been something in those movies that's a little bit of a parallel of what they were making fun of uh in young frankenstein but it's, it's not coming uh coming to me right away yeah, I was I was just curious about that if that was because so much of uh, Young Frankenstein did follow the storylines. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And so I wondered if there was a version of that in the 1931 Frankenstein, and well, not. De definitely not in the 31 Frankenstein. No, not in Bride or Son of Frankenstein. But uh, but something is telling me there may be something in one of the later ones that they sort of you know that they sort of took from because it's kind of even though it's mostly young frankenstein is mostly son of frankenstein they obviously borrowed little bits here and there one interesting thing that comes out of young frankenstein which is not in the movies that they may have actually invented that has become so synonymous is when in the creation scene with gene wilder and young frankenstein you know when he does his whole it's alive it's alive he's wearing sort of mad scientist goggles they don't do that in any of the original Frankenstein <laughs> movies. It just became something that they put in, uh, uh, you know, later, which is funny because that's become synonymous with it. Yeah, and the so. frazzled hair. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. He doesn't look anything like that. Colin Clive certainly did not do that in the uh, first two Frankensteins. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I just I can't believe how much fun it is to remember these uh, these old classics. Um, what was uh, when you were researching and putting this together and deciding exactly how you were going to tell this story, Julian? What was what were some of the things that stood out most to you? I mean, obviously, it was Junior taking over Universal and and lobbying to make the Frankenstein movie, um, and and of course the. Uh, I, I think rift is too strong a word, but uh, the, the competition, we'll say, between uh, Bela Lugosi and, and uh, Boris Karloff for the part of Frankenstein, um, or the part of the monster. I, I, I've got to get back to using the, right. <laughs> the terms properly. But um, it. Uh, what were some of the things that that you found the most compelling that you thought, man, this has got to go in the book? Well, like I said, it was the fact that, and this is based on all the real evidence, that the part of the monster was not cast until almost the last minute, and apparently it went back and forth between uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi uh, right up to the end, that originally when the film was announced, and there's even posters that exist uh, from this, it says Bela Lugosi, you know, as, as Frankenstein's monster, and then it disappears. He, he's not mentioned anymore. And then, in the, you know, the backstory is, is that James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, discovered Boris Karloff in the commissary at Universal and asked him if he wanted to test for the role. And then Boris Karloff and the, and the legendary uh, makeup artist Jack Pierce, who built the beautiful Frankenstein monster makeup, you know, they worked for weeks at night after hours building this beautiful monster that's become one of the most iconic images of the 20th century. But that there was still a lot of back and forth right up until the beginning of shooting about who was actually going to play the role because even though, uh, uh, Car it was working with Karloff, there was also the desire, uh, you know, Junior Lemley was obviously was aware of movie stars, and Lugosi had become a star, so there was a lot of back and forth about who should ultimately play the monster, and that was the part that, one, I didn't know, that I discovered, you know, doing the research for it, and two, I found was really just a, a great thing to put into a book, and to tell the story of just the last few days before they started shooting Frankenstein, because it was a great way to show these three characters, all of whom are heroes of mine, just, you know, to bring out their characters and put them in really interesting, fun situations. Would money have played a role and or um, the fact that Karloff wasn't particularly well known, so you wouldn't misidentify the monster as the actor portraying him that that is there there is i don't know money per se because i don't think any of these guys were getting paid even though lugosi had become well known that's also one of the kind of the tragedies of his life that he was even when his name became well known out there he always seemed to be at the short end of what he should have been getting paid as a as a known actor um, Universal didn't treat him particularly well during Dracula and even afterwards. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if that was too much of an issue. Um, the fact that they might have wanted to go with an unknown, I, I don't know how much of that was an issue. But it was believed that James Whale wanted that, 
um, and like someone who would sort of disappear into the makeup. So that is part of the legend, but th- there were so many factors going into the back and forth up until the beginning of filming. What's next for you, Julian? It's alive too. <laughs> no, I, I'm uh, I'm actually about <laughs> I'm about halfway through another novel that I was uh, sort of working on around the same time before I sort of fully committed to getting uh, to getting this in the in the right place um, so that I could finish it. Uh, I have a novel about the space race, actually. About I'm uh, I'm quite passionate about the Apollo missions oh, of the '60s and early '70s, and I'm about halfway through that. Well, that sounds like fun. I hope when you get that done, you'll come back and we can talk about that, too. Oh, I would love to. That would be wonderful. I love talking with you. Is um, is the book It's Alive um, film-worthy? Uh, Do you think there's room so. for a story? <laughs> I, I mean, really, uh, is I, there room for a story about a story? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's very popular right now. There's a series on, uh, you know, with, with all the streaming services, there's a series on Paramount Plus about the making of The Godfather. I mean, I, I think absolutely it would make a wonderful movie. Uh, I think it's, you know, that was certainly in my mind as I was writing it. Uh, I, I wrote a novel first and foremost, but, you know, I still have my screenwriter background. And as I'm going through it, uh, you know, it definitely occurs to me that this would work quite nicely on the screen. I think it's three roles that actors would love to play. You know, that's sort of a, always a good starting off point, who wants to play these roles. And I think it's three really juicy characters that, you know, would be a lot of fun for an actor. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Brad Garrett might uh, make it make it good for us. <laughs> there you go. That's a good, that's good. A lot of people have been doing that have been suggesting casting that's a good one i hadn't thought of that one that's great I, in fact i'm i'm surprised if they, if they ever bring back another monsters i'd be surprised if brad garrett didn't get hit up to at least uh you know consider it yeah no I, I, he, he'd be perfect for it um and and that's another thing is is the parodies of, of oh, those original yeah. movies show up you know so much the uh um the the monsters is is just become its own classic uh, you know, right from basically it, poking fun at at the look of those characters right well it just shows you how you know how famous they are the fact that you know immediately you know you can show somebody that image of frankenstein and immediately they'll go that's frankenstein i mean it's one of the most famous images in the 20th century and the the parodies are for that that you immediately know what they're parodying julian we're uh just about out of time but as you know i always like to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past present and future do you have a website you'd like to share I absolutely do. It's juliandavidstone.com. You can go there and there's more about It's Alive. In fact, you can read the first chapter for free. If you go on my website, you can absolutely download it for free. And you can, and if you like it, then the book is available everywhere, Amazon, bookstores. Uh, but Julian David Stone is the perfect place to find out about me and to get the first chapter of It's Alive for free. Did this, um, did you actually write this book and complete this book during the pandemic uh i had started it 
actually many years ago. I mean, this goes back almost 10 years for me, but then I got the, the rock and roll book that we were, you know, that I was on your show a few years ago talking about kind of came out of nowhere. So that kind of stopped me working on It's Alive for a couple of years. Um, and then I went back to it, and I definitely, during the pandemic, is when I sort of hunkered down and said, okay, you need to get this finished. You know, this, you, this is, thing's been floating around for too long. You, you need to really focus, and the pandemic gave me the time for that. <laughs> well, good for you. Um, Julian, it's been a real pleasure. Julian David Stone, it's great talking to you again. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Take care. And we'll have more right after this. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flipflip Technology, My Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital. Go to a local symphony concert. Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom
Honey, it's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company, and then ask for the gift card number over the phone. Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov ag for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone. I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. But old Weird Harold and I, old Weird Harold, we called him that because he was 6'9", weighed 50 pounds. We used to use him to get the football out of the sewer. (laughs) We used to go to every Hiram picture in the world. I'm telling you right now, we would go and we would see Frankenstein. We'd walk 100 miles to see Frankenstein. And mind you, we never saw the monster once. Never saw him once, because we were too scared to look at him. And we had the best seats in the movie. We used to sit right up front. I mean, right up front. That's where you can see everything. You just look right up front there. And we'd say to each other, you going to look at the monster this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't lie now. If you're not going to look at him, say that. You might as well get right on the floor now if you're not going to look at him. You didn't look at him the last time. Yes, I did. Don't lie. Put it on. Oh, look out. That's where we stayed for 12 days. Used to go home with 100 black juji fruits all on our backs. Yeah. So... My mother, we used to stay over and over and over trying to get to see the monster, but we couldn't do it. We were too scared. And my mother used to come for me. Would you come home? Get up off the floor and come home. You know, and the guys would rise. Hey, cause your mom came for you again. You shut up. So my mother said one day, she said, I'm not coming for you. That's all. You know, you'll come home yourself. Walk under 9th Street Bridge in the dark by yourself if you don't know how to come home. Oh, mom, you'll come home for us. So... We were watching this one picture, and it was, it was a heck of a picture. It was one of the, one of the greatest. They, they had uh, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula, the Hunchback, the Mummy. Everybody was in it, and Harold and I stayed on that floor. Our eyes were closed all day. We never came up one time for air. Every time there was somebody on that screen, we didn't want to see. The Mummy's in there now. Oh, we don't want to look. We don't want to look. And we sat through about 12 showings of the same picture. You gonna look this time? No, get up off the floor. No, I ain't getting up nowhere. It ain't gonna get me. So, finally, during the cartoon, I got up and I looked around. And I said, hey, Harold, there's nothing here but grown-ups. And Harold said, yeah. Because that's what he always says whenever I'm right. 
He's my closest friend, you know. I said, ask that man what time it is. Hey, mister! What time is it? It's 10 o'clock. Oh, Harold. Oh, Harold, we're in trouble. 10 o'clock, yeah. 10 o'clock, that's when the monsters come out. And my mom didn't even come for us, man. Well, she said she would, yeah, but she's supposed to come for us, man. She ain't supposed to let us go home at 10 o'clock with all the monsters out of thing. Yeah. And we walk out of the movie crying, oh, we got out of 10 o'clock. Now, the walk home, Ninth Street Bridge has no lights whatsoever, which is highly, well, it's the only way to get home. And we are sick. You're talking about two scared kids just walking, you know, arm in arm, not even picking our feet up off the ground because we want to be ready. If the monster touches us, we want to be ready to jump straight up to heaven. You know, when you pick one leg up, you take a chance on going sideways. You know, and we got our leg. We're just sending our toes out six feet ahead of us like radar. Kids coming. Kids coming. And I'm telling you, really scared, ready to go any second. And I bumped into Harold. Bump. I said, Harold, did I bump into you? Harold said, no. I said, don't lie to me now, Harold. Because if I bumped into you, say that I bumped. Even if I didn't bump into you, Harold, say that I bumped into you. Because if I didn't, we're going to get eaten alive. You know that, don't you? Harold said, well, you bumped into me. I said, okay, don't lie anymore. Now, I don't know the name of the wino that came out of the alley that, that uh, emptied onto the Ninth Street Bridge. I don't even care what the guy's name is, man. All I know is that he was wrong. That's all I can say. He was pure D wrong. You just don't walk out of an alley that empties on the Ninth Street Bridge without making some sort of announcement, warning little kids. Look out, little kids, coming home from the Ashton movie after seeing a whole lot of horror monsters. There's just nobody that can hurt you. It's just a little old wino. And he came out. Now, I'm sure while filling out the accident report on this man that the doctor said, what happened? I don't know. It was just four feet, ran right up my chest, danced on my head for a half hour, and then ran straight down my back, doctor. Well, did they say anything? Yes. They said, ah! Did you see them at all? Yes, it was a little kid riding on top of a tall, skinny one, and he was beating him with a stick, saying, faster, faster, you fool, you fool. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all my guests today, starting with this last hour we spent with uh, Julian David Stone talking about his uh, behind-the-scenes drama of 1931 Frankenstein called It's Alive. Before that, we talked with um, the co-authors of Standing Up, Tales of Struggle, activists uh, Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller and we started out this morning with a very interesting conversation um, with uh, Christopher C.J. Cross who is uh, an international organizational development consultant and founder of Ascension Worldwide a full-service minority-owned consulting firm And his book is called, What's Your Zip Code Story? Understanding and Overcoming Class Bias in the Workplace. Anyway, that, uh, as I said, wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. That's Smoking George Winters, Tickling the Ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. And uh, I get to kick back for the whole weekend, but I will be back Monday morning with another edition of the Tom Sumner program, and I hope you will be too. In the meantime, have a great weekend, everybody, and, uh, well, I I guess that's all there is left to say, but good night, everyone. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and pencil sketch recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.